1: I, can't it's alive, it's alive,
0: it's alive. I guess a the Another special side note about this episode is I haven't drank in over like a week, I think, maybe. Yeah, and so trying to cut back on it but then i wasn't going to drink today but then, as i thought about it more and more i was like fuck you i'm having a beer or two three i don't know either way you're getting my authentic self today (laughs) hey oh great very excited for that i bet you are uh well hello and welcome to cinema shock it is the podcast that uh, I forgot. Oh, it's a podcast wow. dedicated to the history and evolution <laughs> of cult and genre movies. I am as God made me, and I am also Gary Horn, <laughs> one of your hosts. <laughs> don't blame God. you did this to yourself.
2: <laughs> I'm co-host Justin Bishop. We're joined today by writer, comedian, podcaster, Mr. Todd A Davis. Welcome, hey, to
0: hey guys. Welcome, Todd. Hey. Nice to see hey. you. Nice Good to see, see you. everyone. Todd it's good to see hey, everyone you too. I've only been guest starring on Todd's show for like three weeks straight so
1: have you yeah um, there was a get, <laughs> there was a question can't... about what episode he wanted to do and then I had some gaps and he and I well do you want to just fill these gaps and he's just like yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> It's weird it's that's how my my wife normally uh gets me in the mood too
1: <laughs> she fills in your gaps
0: yeah she's like do you want to fill in these gaps <laughs>
1: oh okay (laughs)
2: um is it is it because you can't get anyone else to sit and talk about star trek enterprise no
1: i've actually got a bunch of people who want to sit and talk about star trek enterprise that just Kind of how the cards fell, but we've got uh, a couple of repeat guests, and I'm branching out and looking for some new folks. And pretty much, if you dig Star Trek, all you have to do is reach out and ask me. <laughs> this is not it's, this, this is not your you...
2: Star Trek promotion podcast here, Todd. No, we got, no, we hey. got work to get to. What I <laughs> hey, found oh
1: thought God. about it
0: though, just can I say is that what it is is that he gave he's going off the chronological project, and their episodes are n- di- numbered differently than other places number of the episode so when he told me episode this number i watched that number but that wasn't the right episode did he give you the title of the episode i think he did give me the title i just went by the number and just jumped in anyway so then i went back and did the one i was supposed to and the one i accidentally watched was actually my favorite episode so far so i was like well i want to do that one and uh (laughs) anyway but as if star trek needed to get more confusing they did (laughs) thanks
1: (laughs) happy to help fellas
2: (laughs) oh man so this week folks this is our continuation of our series on the on the career of daniel o'bannon uh we we spent two weeks talking about alien the biggest movie probably of his career and and again one of probably the biggest movies we've ever talked about which is why it took us you know like three hours to, to do so i hope you guys enjoyed that uh i hope you guys enjoyed us taking that kind of really deep Dive into Alien because we don't half-ass anything around here at Cinema Shock. If we're going to give you the all the information about these movies, we're going to give you like
0: every bit of it we can find. Absolutely, even if it means we have to split an episode in half. We dig deep into the catacombs of YouTube and Google and everywhere you can find anything. I was watching a uh, Dan O'Ban. I mean, I do read books as well. i just what? Google what searches those? here. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I don't even remember how paper works. Uh, the, no the the I was watching a video about Dan O'Bannon today where he received like some H.P. Lovecraft award and that was very interesting because he talked a yeah. little bit about Alien just in that uh, he was he was discussing where he first fell in love with H.P. Lovecraft and uh, it was just kind of fun hearing him talk about that. He was proud of getting the award and like what is it like his favorite H.P. Lovecraft story is uh, Color Out of Space and uh, so I, I think he died before that last film came out right. Yeah, that movie came out last year. Oh yeah, that's right. So yeah, <laughs> it's uh, time means nothing. Um, <laughs> the but yeah, anyway, he he talked about going into buying his first like nickel edition of some H.P. Lovecraft like a uh, collection or something, and uh, reading that book and being enthralled, like staying up all night reading it. And it had snowed that night. He had like a fun little story about going outside and in the piles of snow, like a one lone rose had come through the snow. And he can only think about that story, Color Out of Space, which if you've (laughs) never seen it or whatever, it's like killer vegetation, basically. And uh, anyway, uh, but he was talking about how much inspiration he got from Lovecraft as a horror writer, which I just, I I loved as a a guy who also loves Lovecraft. You can see it a lot
2: in Alien, and I think you can actually see it a lot in this week's film as well, even though, as we'll discuss, O'Bannon's influence on this one wasn't quite as great as it was on Alien. Uh, And and so you would think that, you know, as we discussed last week, Alien was it was huge. It was a massive success, Uh, spawned a bunch of sequels and stuff. But after the success of Alien, you'd hope that Hollywood would be like knocking down the door of the guy who wrote it, Dan O'Bannon, but that didn't exactly happen for O'Bannon. As we discussed last week, some of the producers on that film, especially Walter Hill, really tried to kind of underplay O'Bannon's work on the film despite the fact that he came up with the entire concept. I mean, he he wrote, you know, even though the final screenplay, yes, he was given credit, but Walter Hill essentially wrote the screenplay that made it to the screen, but all the concepts were O'Bannon's. Hell, he's the guy who got H.R. Giger involved you know and the movie wouldn't be the same without that and he had to fight to receive the screenplay credit on that film and it was kind of a public battle that didn't do much to help the reputation of a guy who's already known to be kind of grumpy and cantankerous you know Uh, but then two years after alien o'bannon did get another film with his name attached to it produced although its legacy in regards to o'bannon's actual contributions uh, is, is complicated for reasons that we'll get into over the course of this episode. Uh, but that film, like Alien, was co-written by Ronald Shusett, released in 1981, and directed by Gary Sherman. Let's talk about Dead and Buried.
1: From the creators of Alien, terror brought down to Earth. Oh my God, they're, going, they're going. Fear, so intense, it will stay with you to the grave. And beyond uh, 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 welcome to potter's bluff two murders in a town no bigger than a poster stamp when you die in potter's bluff expect the unexpected Hell uh, is going on in this town potter's bluff a nice place to visit but you wouldn't want to die there uh, yeah I will make you beautiful again, even more beautiful than before. Dan, I'm dead. Please bury me. Dead and Buried. The movie you'll want to see if you dare to look. Bury me.
0: (laughs) Dead and Buried. One thing I was going to mention, uh, by the way, that I just remembered right now from from that interview with O'Bannon was just that I wanted to say that I've come around on him a little bit. He seems more fun loving than he comes across sometimes as we describe it. And I know Justin's on his side most of the time, but because of his rivalry with John Carpenter, I think I have like a little bit inside of me that wants to hate him. And uh, so I'm like, oh, he's just a grumpy old bastard all the time. But when I saw this Lovecraft interview, you could see like the passion in him. Like he was really yeah. like excited talking about it like he had a fun story about cthulhu like telling about he's like i've researched this i know how to pronounce that name he's like there's a lot of debate about this but i went and i found every instance where he's mentioned his name to somebody and so Mm. like i studied lovecraft and the real pronunciation this is an exclusive it's he's like that's (laughs) the real pronunciation and that's the last time I'm going to say that because it's not meant for mortal tongue.
1: <laughs> that's nice. Great. Sounds like you're speaking
0: Klingon a little bit.
1: Right. A little bit. Count. Yeah. I was going to say that does sound very Klingon.
0: The, the other rounded off point I was going to make is you can see like why something like this would be interesting. in to him, because he describes that, like, because of the way he says you always need like a cinematic equivalent of Lovecraft's prose. And that's why he's so hard to adapt to screen but the best one that had ever been done he said was reanimator but that aspect of Lovecraft him going outside of his normal writing which is sort of how this film is in a sense too that that's that's the best way you could even ever capture him
2: so let's rewind a few years to back before aliens production so according to Dan O'Bannon he'd written a screenplay called they bite which was later renamed omnivore which he calls a predecessor to Alien, saying that it is, quote, similar to Alien in tone, but the effects were much more elaborate. So then 1975, it, when it was written, studios weren't keen to do a sci-fi film with elaborate special effects, a, a stance that would, of course, change a couple of years later with the release of Star Wars, after which everybody wanted to do special effects-filled uh, sci-fi movies. So, if, and if you've watched their the uh, the 2019 documentary "Memory: The Origins of Alien," which we I think briefly mentioned last week, or or maybe the week before, uh, and if you haven't seen it and are a fan of Alien, I highly recommend that you check it out. But if you uh, if you've watched that, then you heard them refer to that script. Uh, they bite. They bite was about these three-legged bugs that would devour anything they came across and then mimic what they ate. Uh, for instance, if the bug ate a dog, it would transform into a bizarre bug dog hybrid, and you could see where the studios might have thought that the effect to pull <laughs> the effects to pull something like that off would have been a little bit too difficult in 1975.
1: Sounds a little like John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, just I mean just a based lit- on those very few details.
2: Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, although The Thing in John Carpenter's The Thing does do a pretty good job of i mean it mimics it it creates a perfect a replica of whatever it's mimicking the times that in that that we see that it's not a perfect replica is when it's either changing to something totally different or changing or it's in the middle of changing like when we see the weird dog monster uh, but like when it changes into you know wilford brimley or whatever it's it's a perfect it's a perfect, perfect. wilford brimley specimen
0: it starts pitching Quaker Oats like immediately. <laughs> it's just weird how much it picks up on. Yeah. It honestly
2: makes me think of the uh, Guillermo del Toro movie Mimic.
1: Perfect uh, Wilford Brimley specimen. So that sounds syndrome. like maybe the title of a weird punk band.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, okay. So Mimic makes a lot of sense, but also we'd be remiss not to mention the Xenomorph, like how it ends up going. Of course, along. In, in later in later Alien stories that but which he had nothing to do with though yeah
2: yeah that's just a coincidence but yes i mean the alien does it but mimic is actually it's actually a bug you know just like an o'bannon story so at the time that he was working on the script for they bite is around the same time that he became friends with ronald chusette so he so he showed chusette the script hoping to get some notes from the fellow screenwriter but said, actually wasn't really interested in it. He didn't really like horror films that were gory, which O'Bannon's treatment for this apparently was. He thought that gory horror films were in bad taste. And O'Bannon, if you listen to him in interviews talk about this, he kind of agrees. Uh, in an interview on the Dead and Buried Blu-ray, for instance, he explains that he's never really liked horror films that, quote, wallow in graphic mutilation." In that same interview, he also says he doesn't really like the term horror. He instead prefers to call them weird tales or something along those lines. Uh, A phrase that, to me, evokes the old EC comics, you know, uh, weird tales, tales from the crypt, vault of horror, things like that. I I think that's kind of where he's getting. uh, To him, these stories are appealing because of their ideas, those fantasy elements, things that can only kind of work in a genre story
1: because when i was putting together my uh my horror list my horror movies list uh that was one of the things that i was uh drawn to were of course horror movies but like horror suspense and horror thriller and horror mystery you know i i kind of uh you know strayed a little bit towards the psychological which to me ends up being more scary The you know the thing you can't see you know your brain fills that in you know it's one thing to see well him i mean that's, that's
0: the appeal of
2: lovecraft
1: yeah, yeah yeah exactly
0: to me i wonder if uh it's anything to do with i don't know like the connotation that it has well you, you know it's funny as we're recording this and i think justin you saw this at least the uh the last drive-in with joe bob briggs as we record this was just started back at season three and uh eli roth was on there and they mentioned they talked to him a little bit about how he hates being called a horror director and he says it's not really that he hates being a horror director it's just that there's a certain thing when people say that about you that he knows usually those people are implying well they're implying that you can
2: only it's like lowbrow and you're not capable of doing anything else right so for o'bannon horror only worked when you focused on the moments between the scares uh, to him, he says, that's when you create the suspense. The The scares are just the icing on the cake. Like, he he had no problem with there being gore in a horror movie as long as the moments leading up to that, as long as they mattered. You know, to, to, because the the actual scare or the moment of gore, the moment of violence is just like the exclamation point. But it's actually the suspense. That is the real scary part, you know. Uh, I I remember uh, a couple years ago when I was at at Disney World, and and this kind of revelation hit me that like when you're on a roller coaster, at least for me, the scary part is going up the hill. You know that mm. anticipation of going up the hill. Uh, this you know what's coming. You know that there's something scary coming, and then click 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 click. Yeah, that's the that's the the anticipation <laughs> of that is actually what's scary once you go over that hill and you're you're flying down around curves and stuff that's just fun that's like the fun part the scary part is actually knowing what's coming up what's what's like anticipating that
0: something crazy is about to happen or even when right. they Horror first movies like are
2: kind of the same way
0: even when they lock down the 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 fucking thing across your chest or whatever and it like moves a little bit you know like it's got a little bit of give in there and you're just like is this supposed to be loose is this did you click it enough am i too fat for this should i get out i mean i'm sure you've never dealt with that justin but for, for a man like myself i'm like i don't know is this down all the way like i don't uh i don't you're, you're like anticipating that this thing is going to fly up and you've got to hang on for dear life when you uh-huh. go over the hill
1: well, you know, and I think we've mentioned this on a couple different episodes. If you care about the characters, you're more invested in, in the in the story, you know? Sure.
2: I mean, and there are other, there are horror movies where that's, that is not the case because they're not necessarily going for real scares. Sure. Right. You know, which we'll see later on, I think, and even O'Bannon's career with, with probably his most famous contribution to what would be considered I guess like a traditional more traditional horror film in a couple of weeks mm. but he I don't know it's for what he's talking about if you're really trying to scare the audience like I, I think he's absolutely right. like if you're really trying to get uh, a, an emotional reaction out of the audience I, I think that's the way you do it and that's a lesson that shuset took to heart when he worked on Dead and Buried a few years later. I mean, obviously, Obannon was able to make a solid case for horror to Shusett because he would eventually help him co-write Alien, and then, uh, and then help bring Dead and Buried to the screen. So Shusett's early work on Dead and Buried. Actually, came before Alien had even been released. He he had acquired a script by a couple of writers named Alex Stern and Jeff Millar that he was going to produce. Shusett and Oban the two they would often ask each other to check out you know the projects they're working on. They trusted each other's uh, opinions. And Shuset asked O'Bannon to take a look at the script. He, he wanted to see what he thought of it structurally. So O'Bannon, you know, wanted to help out his friend. He took a look at it. He offered some suggestions here or there, even helped to punch up the dialogue a little bit. And O'Bannon kind of thought that was it. That would be the extent of it. He'd, he was helping out a buddy, essentially. Well, once Alien was released in 1979, all of a sudden the two writers had some name recognition. So Shuset asked O'Bannon if he could put his name on the screenplay to help give it some credibility, knowing that it would be much easier to sell a script that was from the writers of Alien. And O'Bannon felt a little bit weird about this. It didn't really sit well with him. He felt that his contributions to the script were pretty minimal, and he didn't want to take credit where he felt credit was not due. Because remember, O'Bannon had just spent a year on Alien battling producers for his own screenplay credit on that movie and he just didn't feel comfortable putting his name on what he considered to be someone else's screenplay. Uh, according to a he did not he he didn't write the screenplay. He had simply doctored it. And script doctors are a common thing in Hollywood, but they don't usually get screenplay credit.
1: Well, a lot of a lot of biographies of, you know, famous or autobiographies, it's always like written by the person with Oh yeah, that's because else. the person who
2: is the the celeb or whoever's writing it is not a writer, so they hire somebody. Uh, okay. To come in and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I just did actual. Is there some? For
1: it. Is there something like that for screenplays?
2: No, I mean you've got you've got a screenplay credit, you've got a story by credit. That's it. Mm. Uh, sometimes it will say written by so and so and so and so with an ampersand, and then a the word and, and then another name or another couple of names, and usually that's because the final shooting script is using material from two different versions of the script written by two different screenplay teams or, or one had rewritten a previous screenplay but the contributions of the previous screenplay were still apparent enough in the final film to where they still deserve screenplay credit even though their script had been rewritten oh, I whereas you. what what O'Bannon is doing here is he's just coming in and he's adding things and he's saying oh no Punch you up. should move this around Punch up. maybe this dialogue yeah he's punching it up that's what a script doctor does nice but Chuset was pretty insistent about O'Bannon's name being put on this. So he, he told O'Bannon, he's like, the, the guys who wrote the screenplay, they're fine with it. They end up receiving a story credit on the film. So their their names are still there. And O'Bannon reluctantly gave in. And Shusette told him, don't worry, you won't be embarrassed by the final project, uh, which was never O'Bannon's concern. His concern was receiving undeserved credit because he knew what it was like to fight for that. So with the screenplay ready to go, it's time to find a director for this movie. So before this, Shuset had done some screenwriting work on a film called Phobia, which would be released in 1980 under the direction of none other than John Huston. I did not know John Huston did movies like this, but John Huston, you know, father of Angelica Huston, famous director, guy who gave us the Maltese Falcon, the treasure of the Sierra Madre, the African Queen, uh, you know, legendary director. He did this little movie called Phobia, and Phobia was not Houston's finest hour. Uh he, he John Houston was an alcoholic, maybe he was drunk the whole time he made this movie, but it did not get it got horrible reviews. Uh the film stars Mar, uh, Paul Michael Glasser, who was Starsky from Starsky and Hutch. Uh, he plays a psychiatrist who's developing experimental techniques to cure his patients of various phobias when his patients begin to be murdered each according to their own specific phobia, which sounds fun. It sounds like a schlocky fun thriller, you know, but it was not well received by critics. Uh, the LA times called it quote, the worst film ever directed by a winner of the American film
1: Institute's life achievement award. <laughs> Let me just, hold on. Let me grab that knife and just twist it just a little bit. There we go.
2: Yeah, that's like a, it's like sort of a, it's an insult and I don't know, it's got (laughs) that little bit of compliment in there. Like we know that you're good or can be good or have been good, but like this is easily the worst film that you or any other director on this list has ever made. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Shusett can't be entirely held accountable for that film's failure uh, because his script was rewritten. He was given a story credit on the film, and he was given a story credit alongside a co-writer by the name of Gary Sherman. Although Dan O'Bannon actually did some some uncredited work on that as well. He did some script doctoring on that one too. But Gary Sherman is who we want to talk about. Gary Sherman is a film director who was born in Chicago but moved to London after college, started working there uh, in commercials, and then co-wrote and directed his first feature film, Deathline, starring Donald Pleasance. It was released oh, no. in 1972 under the title Raw Meat in America, which is mm. a pretty fun title. Uh, the film was fairly well received and was a big factor in Sherman getting hired on as the director of Dead and Buried. And have you seen you guys seen Deathline? You seen Raw Meat? I've never seen that. No, it sounds, no, it's,
1: sounds fun though.
2: It's it's fun. It's uh, Donald Pleasance is. I mean Donald Pleasance is just a gem all yeah. the time, but this is like Donald Pleasance playing. You know how he plays, uh, he in the later Halloween movies where he's just like right. off his rocker, yeah. the whole time. Right. Yeah, that's kind of how he plays this. Only it's a, it's supposed to be intentionally funny, uh, for a movie that is a very dark movie about uh, uh, people who were forgotten uh, in London and live in. As cannibals in the uh in the closed down subway tubes. Uh yeah. <laughs> it's that, a, sounds, it, that it's does a, sound like fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's uh it's pretty easy to find. It's uh, I actually watched it on Tubi TV for free. If nice. you got that app on like Roku or whatever, it's yeah. on there. And I think Sherman is a pretty good director. I haven't seen a lot of his movies. I've seen uh I've seen obviously Dead and Buried and I've seen Deathline. He would later do Poltergeist three, uh, which we talked a little bit about on our Poltergeist episode, but I think his Work is good, and despite the, the final product not quite being the film that he intended, which we'll get into in a minute, I think Sherman's direction is a large part of what makes Dead and Buried work for me. Another major factor in what makes the film work, and probably something that it's most well-known for, to be honest, is the special effects work by a young up-and-comer by the name of Stan Winston. Uh-huh. I've heard of that guy. Yeah, you've heard of that guy, the late, great Stan Winston. I'm sure most of our listeners know that name. Uh, He's the guy who would later be responsible for special effects work uh, in the Terminator series, uh, Jurassic Park, Aliens, Predator. Like, he's a legend, you know. Uh, At the time that he got the gig on Dead and Buried, though, he was still pretty early in his career, although he was already having some successes. He'd actually won the Emmy Award in 1973 for his work on a made-for-TV horror film called Gargoyles. And then he would continue to work primarily in TV for the remainder of that decade, including, I did not know this about Stan Winston, but he created the Wookiee costumes for the infamous Star Wars holiday special.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> huh? All that now said, I, and, and you could crap on him, but uh, imagine this being your rookie shit. Like that's, yeah, that's how crazy Stan Winston is uh and just i mean the thing is is he'd done you know some of this movie stuff but usually a lot of the work at this point was uncredited too like i was looking him up and he had done some stuff like on like the whiz and friday the 13th part two like all yeah. uncredited all around this time uh, well he I, I bet i wonder if he was working for someone else like
2: as an assistant where he wouldn't receive credit as like the makeup supervisor or special effects supervisor
0: or anything yeah, like that. I, I, I don't, don't know. know i'm just curious yeah, but I mean, we could do a whole series on Stan Winston, and uh, we, just, we probably
2: will one day. Just
0: primarily, I'd be totally so we can down talk for about that. Pumpkin That's pretty awesome,
1: actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: just for shits and giggles, though, to give some context to his work here, when you hear him talk about it, I mean, he's like a longtime horror nerd, and he oh, yeah. loves he loves talking about the history of horror. And uh, so, in several interviews, I saw him talking about uh, uh, one of the points he loves is like you know, he was really into the universal monsters and then horror kind of died off and it goes into that 50s sci-fi kind of deal. Uh, But then Hammer tries to make a bounce back in some stuff that he loved. And I think the Curse of Frankenstein was one of his favorites. But uh, it's not until the late 70s and early 80s that there's an opportunity. And he'll tell you that everyone who loves horror needs to tip their hat to Ridley Scott, Dan O'Bannon and Shusset for Alien because he, for him, he says, that's when horror was finally put on the a-list so for him working mm-hmm. on this project made by these people was a big deal because he's yeah. working with people who made his favorite genre mainstream essentially he wants to be really? part of this legacy of horror and he, he he sees that here
2: yeah and you know i remember when i first saw dead and Buried. i saw it in the early 2000s when blue underground released their dvd Uh, That was back when, you know, DVD collecting was a big thing. It was a big thing for me. Uh, And I was really able to discover movies that I might not have ever known about otherwise because they were getting released by these kind of niche companies like Blue Underground. And Dead and Buried was one of those movies. And when when it was first released, like I didn't know a lot about it other than I knew that Winston was involved. His name was one of the film's selling points, along with the names of O'Bannon and Shusset. But I also sort of thought, I thought the film was maybe like an, an outlier in his filmography since it mostly contained makeup effects and not the puppetry and animatronics that he would you know, be better known for later on in his career. But I was dead wrong about that because as I began to research this film, I started to realize that a lot of the effects that I thought were makeup effects were in fact puppets. Like Uh, real wrong.
0: You were real wrong because I was very wrong. (laughs) Perhaps perhaps this is some of his most incredible work because it's not like fancified stuff or outlandish work. Uh, This is like just he takes otherwise mundane looking things, but. It's fucking puppets. Like he yeah. made
2: that. Yeah. He made it all. And if you hear him talk in interviews, there's a great interview with him on the Dead and Buried Blu-ray. He is a he is a stickler for detail and realism. Like he wants he wants to fool the audience, and he absolutely succeeds. It's one thing to fool the audience to believe that a dinosaur is real because we've never seen dinosaurs, or that the alien queen is real because we've never seen the alien queen. But we know what a fucking human body looks like, yeah. you know. So to be able to fool me for years. I, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, it is remarkable work, especially considering how young he was and how early in his career he was just getting started at this point. So for this to give you guys an example, the the first victim that we see, uh, the guy who's been horribly burned and left in the burning car, you know, and it's a great jump scare. It's a really great, sequence yeah it's uh, fun. that I that I think still remains effective uh my wife watched this with me she'd never seen it so she didn't know it was coming and I had forgot it was coming and she jumped <laughs> at it and she doesn't jump at jump scares because she watches a lot of horror movies with me I never jump at jump scares but when he like screams Yo, that, yeah. it like is fucking terrifying
1: yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> and
2: it's a mixture of the sound and the look of it but um and I and I do think that As I watched it this time, I was like, I bet David Fincher ripped this off for that similar scene in seven where they find the guy that's like tied to the bed. And you think he's dead until he starts screaming. Yeah. Yes. I I don't know this. I mean, this is just me speculating, but I feel like David Fincher had to have seen this and gotten that (laughs) idea from it. Uh, But anyway, I always assumed that this was someone that was heavily made up to look burned, but it's a puppet it's a it's a puppet of a skeleton with somebody's hand inside of it uh and it's crazy cuz it looks really good
0: yeah, yeah it it definitely does and he talk he talks a lot about that that this was a good example in this movie for him to get he wanted to go deeper than uh i think how he put it was uh not just on the skin outward he wanted he he liked the idea of being able to work inside the body as well so to like develop heart like like he's building whole bodies here and uh it's just pretty interesting because this could have easily like you said been a makeup effect Which but i think really- it works
2: better this way because i mean if if once you know that you realize that there are the the face is gaunt in a way that you wouldn't be able to get with a real person yeah you know, I was where just flesh has been burned away
1: with the makeup stuff, and uh, you know, you're it, adding on. Yeah, it looks. Yeah, it, there's. It's really hard to get it to not look bigger, but when right. it literally does look smaller, and for lack of a better word, gooey. Like, yeah, <laughs> it looks it looks real, man. He gets yeah.
0: proud of his work, too, because he said this was probably a time where Sherman must have hated him because I think he, he said he <laughs> argued with Sherman a lot during this one because he wanted the... Well, they argued he, on the set about it, about how he wanted to shoot it, right? Yeah, because he, he thought the way he had designed and envisioned the shot himself was this puppet is upright. Like, he's in the car and it's burned and you're going to find him, like normally seated but then it looked better that way but Sherman wanted it upside down like the car is you know tipped and and so you're seeing it that way and he didn't like that and he said he fought with Sherman about it but Sherman's of course the director uh but now he admits he's like it no it still works it (laughs) still
2: works yeah regardless
0: he he was worried it wouldn't look as realistic upside
2: down but yeah it does I mean (laughs) it really does so in a later scene just a few minutes later we see the same victim again he's in a full body cast and again, I assumed that this was someone made up in a cast until, of course, the needle in the eye scene, uh, which couldn't be a real person, hopefully. <laughs> but I was very wrong once again. So for this scene, Winston created a full-size puppet, full-size human sized puppet, complete wow. with a, a fully articulated eye. And the reason he did that was because... I think they had planned a shot where the camera actually travels up the body like all in one shot. And then we see the needle go into the eye so that it was there wasn't going to be a cut. So it had to be a full size puppet. They ended up not shooting it that way, but he had created the puppet for that purpose. Uh, But the fact that you can see the fear in that eye.
0: Yeah, I I was about to say it blows my fucking mind. just real raw emotion in that puppet's eyes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like, or it is I. Just the, it's the one, one eye.
2: Never, it's just the one. Just one eye. And I never once questioned no. whether this is a real person or not. And that's a testament to how good Stan Winston is. This effect is 40 years old this year, 40 wow. years old next month. Jeez. And it still holds up better than effects that are six months old.
0: Like, I mean, I know crazy. we're really, we're nerding out here, but I mean, it's, it's really one part where I was like watching the Gary Sherman commentary on this film and I had to rewind it and make sure that I heard that correctly. Cause I, yeah. I was not aware of this. And as they're going and the guys asking him and he's talking about the thing and he's like, well, this was all designed by Stan Winston, like blah, blah, blah. And he's describing it. And the guy's like, so like, you mean be where the needle goes in the eye or something. And he's like, no, he's like, that's the whole thing. Like the whole thing is, stan winston like he he did this uh this is uh i forget the actor's name right off the top of my head uh but he he's like he's like that guy was never wrapped in bandages or anything he's like wait wait a minute (laughs) even he's like hold on this is not a real person at any point there's never a real person in this he's like no no it's just stan winston like it's a puppet uh and winston gives credit too by the way to uh the the other makeup artists on set and i'm trying to think of his name. It's um. Zoltan Elik. And that guy's worked on a bunch of stuff like mask and Independence Day and like a bunch yeah. of stuff. He he gives him credit too. But Winston poured over this thing. He describes being detailed with every single eyelash in that eye.
2: Yeah, he's, a, he's obsessed with making it look
0: as absolutely realistic as possible. And it pays off. Yeah, it looks great. And his idea, I think, was that they would do the jab straight down, but they were worried you wouldn't be able to completely get it like nailed the eye, or they were worried about who was slinging it down, so it was still filmed in reverse. Like they drilled right. like a, a tiny hole in the eye and then had the needle the in the eye. The eye was made of glass, I think, yeah. yeah. And the, which is probably why they
2: scrapped the idea of doing it all in one shot because once you stab it, <laughs> you're done.
0: Hey, That's you know, good. You got, yep, yeah. St. Wits is probably great at parties, like uh, <laughs>
1: what if he ever pulls not his wire or just puts a now, <laughs> now, or <laughs>
2: yeah, not now. Now
1: I'm he's now but he's I'm what Justin? Bit of a buzzkill at parties now. He's dead,
0: Gary. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I think we've seen here that that may not be the case.
2: So one of the film's more extensive effects was the reconstruction of the hitchhiker that was uh, played by Lisa Marie, who is not the Lisa Marie that's in like the Tim Burton movies. I I was like there. There's a different Lisa Marie, uh, but it's an incredible sequence. And it was filmed and edited by Gary Sherman, but it's the effects work by Winston that really makes it shine. So you guys know the scene I'm talking about where we're looking down at the -hmm. the face being reconstructed. Uh, So to achieve this effect, Winston took a live cast of Lisa Marie. And I love that they use this actress who has such a distinct feature. Like her nose is very distinct. She looks like she's from Whoville. I, uh, yes.
0: You bastard. Oh my God, yes. I literally wrote that in my notes. I was going to make that <laughs> reference. I was got, she's got her cute little Whoville nose, <laughs> but they took a life cast
2: of her Winston. The way he describes it is he essentially started carving away at the face of the life cast, uh, carving it down to a skull. So he's doing what they're doing in the movie, but in reverse. And then he used that as a base to recreate her face a little bit at the time. So when you see the scene in the movie, that's Winston's hands on screen actually reconstructing the face as we watch. Like when he's putting, yeah. So you've got this gooey skull that he created, and then you know putting bits of muscle and bits of skin on. Those are Winston's hands in the scene. Of course, they edited it for for length, but then the scene cuts to this side view of a nearly completed face. And we see him like open up her eyelid to reveal an empty socket. Yeah, You know, uh, and that's when you realize as a, as a viewer that this is
0: not the actress laying there. Cause they actually pretty... popped Lisa Marie's eyeball out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's pretty fucking realistic. Looking Lots out, of eyeball violets,
0: it? by the way. So this took a lot out of me. I'm sure this
2: was tough for you, Gary, <laughs> but this scene, you've got Winston's hands doing the work because it was a very complex scene to pull off. And they needed his expertise. So those are his hands in the scene. We see him put the eyeball in, like lift back the the eyelid, put the eyeball in. And then he pulls his hands out of the shot. The shot never cuts. And then when we see the hands re-enter the shot, those are actually the hands of actor Jack Albertson, who plays Dobbs, the mortician. So the camera then, this is, again, all one shot. The camera pans up to show Albertson's face. And while the camera is panned up, the Lisa Marie puppet is pulled out of the scene off camera and then replaced with a gurney where, where the real actress, Lisa Marie is laying on it so that when Dobbs leans down to kiss her head and the camera follows him down, he's kissing the actress on the head. Wow. And then we see him leave the room and the camera lingers again. There's no cuts. And we see another figure walk up, which we never find out who it is. Uh, I don't think, although they they explained who it was supposed to be in the commentary, but after that character, like. puts their hands on on the hitchhiker's head she sits up and it's all one shot and so much is being done in this one shot it's really like it's astounding work
0: It they didn't have to do it that way yeah but
2: it it works so much better because really
0: smooth yeah yeah i never got to the shusset commentary but uh the you know in sherman's commentary he 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 can't remember. I think he describes like not being able to remember why they did that with the other person coming up. And yeah, it's apparently
2: supposed to be uh, the Janet character, Melody Anderson's character, who I think he speculates that maybe she was somehow activating, you know, the
0: magic that brings her to life or something like that. Mm. That could be Um, the part that you know. This is one of the things where we'll we'll get more into detail with this, so I'm not I'm not trying to s- skip ahead here, but this is one of the spots where the changing of the guards studio-wise... This movie switches between three studios. We'll talk about that more in a bit, but this is one of the parts, like, in, Sherman talks a lot about. This is out of place in the movie where this happened. This is one of the earlier kills in his version of the film because Lisa Marie appears earlier Ooh, in the, this version of the film as one of the people, you know, but anyway... Because I think you're going to talk about that in a minute, but the, uh, you know, he had a cool idea about how this transitioned as a shot too, to like where she gets hit with the rock and then is on the gurney and you see her mangled face. Like he had yeah. the idea of of uh, what's his face, the sheriff coming up and finding her and seeing her, and then there's the camera scooting up like on them overhead and him walking away and it coming back down, and then she's on the gurney and he had this whole thing. But the studio that jumped in like nixed that whole thing because they were like that's an ending scene in a movie you can't do that in the middle huh. of the movie and he's like the whole point of this movie is to be unnerving and weird like yeah. he's like i like that <laughs> and uh yeah. he fought with them a lot there but and i and i brought that up to say because as we're talking about stan winston i do want to point out that the absolute worst effect in this film is the one where the doctor Fred gets off yeah who's getting the stuff up his nose.
1: Oh uh, yeah, yeah,
0: and, and that whole area is, uh it, according to Sherman, this was never part of the plan. Like the, that, that yeah. whole thing. Well, well was, let's say first of all, that was not Stan Winston. Yeah, I was gonna say that's. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was gonna say this is not, they couldn't get Stan Winston back. This is added in later. That yeah, it's a reshoot. Sherman says this. This guy was supposed to be in on it already. This is all Dobbs' puppet show. So yeah, that this it, he for him it made no sense. And, and the reason I thought of it, sorry, is that he also hated the part that or he couldn't remember why the lady comes up to activate him and, and acts like almost like Dobbs doesn't know about right. the people being brought back cuz he was like oh now you're lying to the audience and he's like this is you know clearly Dobbs is the the main the big bad at the yeah. end and yeah. uh, he's like so why would Dobbs not just be there for this and so he he Sherman clearly has issues with some of the stuff in the movie
2: well yeah I mean and that part doesn't make any sense but there are several things in this movie that don't make any sense that uh to me doesn't affect my enjoyment uh, I'll give more thought on that later but that's one of them I mean we were, it's it's like yeah, I mean it looks cool I guess but it doesn't really yeah Dobbs should be the one bringing her back if anything else right yeah all right so we've talked about the writing we talked about the director talked about Stan Winston's effects let's talk a little bit about the cast of this movie. So, the cast isn't exactly made of, like, well-known actors, uh, but there's some really great character actors that make up the townsfolk of Potter's Bluff, many of whom were hired because they simply look the part, uh, that small seaside New England town look, you know, uh, which I, it does evoke, again, Lovecraft, I think, but the setting of this movie. And much like we talked about with the cast of Salem's Lot a few weeks ago, you know, how a lot of those characters were... They feel authentic. You know, yes. they they really feel like they, they live in this little kind of seaside town. But there are at least a couple of faces in here that you might recognize, even if you don't realize it. The first of which, we already mentioned him, but that's the great Jack Albertson as Dobbs. He's the guy who ends up being the big villain of the film. Albertson had a long career dating all the way back to the mid-1920s. He got to start on Broadway but he did appear in more than 30 films in his career, beginning with a small role in Miracle on 34th street, the original one. Uh, Most of you probably though, know him as that fucking lazy ass grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka (laughs) and the chocolate Factory.
1: Okay. I was like, God, he looks so familiar and I could not place him for the life of me. That's him. That's
2: grandpa Joe. That fucking mooch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Albertson's awesome man. He is he is a vaudeville OG. Like yeah. he didn't make a, a shit ton of feature films, but he's one of the only actors you know to fit into that category of having one an Oscar, a Tony, and an Emmy. Uh yeah. all he's missing is the Grammy to be part of that uh I, I think there's even a name for like it. He got. He got. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was in the sunshine boys where he got a Tony award or no, he got a nomination there. And I think it was, uh, the subject was roses. He got best supporting actor. He would also get that for when it was adapted into a feature film. He would get best supporting actor in the Oscars for that. Uh, he also got nominated. No, no, no. I was thinking he got nominated for grandpa Joe, but that is not correct. Uh, (laughs) Um, probably did not get nominated there. Nobody cared. (laughs) Well, well, Albertson was,
2: he was kind of known as a
0: comedy guy, you know, like he
2: he was, his, he's his, playing
0: very much against type here. His Emmy was for like, uh, he's the man and Chico and the Man, right? Uh, he's he's that guy. Uh, mm. So yeah, he he, you know he he was on like variety shows all the time, and yeah, actually I think he got a second Emmy for like a appearing on the Share Show or something. Mm. Uh, I remember reading. So uh, I had a quote here from him where he talked about just. Uh, him destroying everything he touched. (laughs) He was saying, (laughs) I started out in vaudeville and vaudeville died. I hit the burlesque houses and they padlocked them. I tried radio and you know what happened to radio? Then live TV and it vanished. Now I finally got a toehold in movies and look what's going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. He's great, man. And and, uh, this was his final film.
2: This is his final film role. He died during post-production on this. Uh, so this is, a, I don't think he even lived to see its release. He was battling cancer during the filming of the movie and wow. nobody really knew. But yeah, you'd never know. Cause he's not, he's given it 110%. Like this is yeah. a powerhouse performance. He is so much fun to
0: watch in this movie. Well, he's one they, of my favorite things about the whole movie. Well, dude, they said, uh, Sherman says they they that he knew he was sick then because he would have these moments of like he was heavily medicated. And there's a scene where, James Ferentino comes into his office and uh who's the sheriff, you know, Albertson's at the table or at the desk and Ferentino's talking to him. And he says at one point when they're shooting the scenes of Ferentino's dialogue, like straight on shots of him, Albertson started like nodding off. And at one point, like nodded off straight back or something and was just out, out like a light. And he said Ferentino was like reading his lines and freaked out and jumped up and ran away. He probably thought had, he died right in front of him. Yeah. <laughs> well, so he said, Sherman says he followed Ferentino and he was in his trailer and he was crying. And he said that his father, I think, had died the same way, like mid-conversation Mid-conversation? With him. Wow. Yeah. And had died. And like, he just had like a flashback when yeah. he thought Albertson was just dead, like right there sitting Jesus. there talking to him. Oh,
2: that's crazy. So, well, I guess let's talk about James Ferentino. So he, James Ferentino plays the lead of the film, Sheriff Gillis. Uh, Prior to this, Farentino was probably best well-known for his roles in 1980's The Final Countdown, which is a movie I really want to talk about on this show one day because it involves time travel, and I think it would be fun to break Gary. I always like breaking Gary's (laughs) brain with time travel movies. Uh, It's a really good movie. Uh, And also, he was in the 1977 TV miniseries Jesus of Nazareth, for which he received an Emmy nomination for his role as Simon Peter. Interesting because you know this guy looks like a middle eastern hero yeah <laughs> <laughs> just, just like everyone else in that movie uh so i think he's he's very good in this though it's kind of a shame he didn't have a bigger career as like a, a character actor i mean he he worked consistently but never he's not a leading man type necessarily but for something like this or in, in character roles in bigger movies i could see him having a big career yeah uh and then starring as his wife, Janet, was Melody Anderson. So Anderson was fairly new to screen acting, but she had just recently filmed a starring role in Flash Gordon. And Flash Gordon was a film that was poised to be one of the biggest movies of the decade. Everyone thought it was going to be huge. It was going to be like the next Star Wars. You know, Queen did the soundtrack for it. And uh, and they all thought that, like, we got, you know, Melody Anderson on this before everyone knows who she is. Like, this is a great it's going to be a big deal because she's going to be a huge star by time our movie comes out and it's going to help our box office and all that. Well, it turns out Flash Gordon was a big flop, like one of the biggest turkeys in (laughs) in box office history. Uh, It's a fun movie, I think. I mean, it's not a great movie, but it's a fun movie, but it did not do very well in the box office. It It was a pretty big failure. So her being in the movie didn't really... Amount to much of anything. Although, yeah. I mean, she's she's very good in the role, but yeah, uh, but her star, there, were, there was no star power there. And then you had Barry Corbin as a townsperson named Phil. He would later go on to have a long running role on Northern Exposure. You've also got Lisa Blount as. Well, Lisa is also her character's name. She's the mm-hmm. nurse uh, slash model at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blount would later appear in an officer and a gentleman. That was probably her biggest role, and she's also in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then she would later become a producer. Actually, uh, as she she was, I did not know this about her, so I started looking into Lisa Blount. I knew she was an officer and a gentleman, but I didn't know that she had a career as a producer. But in, in as a producer alongside her husband, Ray McKinnon, uh, who's a character actor who I'm a big fan of. I really like Ray Ray McKinnon. Blount actually won an Academy Award in 2001 for Best Live Action Short for a film called The Accountant, uh, which was directed by McKinnon. And he stars in it as well, alongside Walton Goggins in a very early role. It's a really good short film. I've actually got it on DVD because our friend Andrew Molinaro a friend of ours, oh, yeah. uh, he uh, that all three of us know, he actually introduced that to me when when I first met him, in in you know, fifteen years ago or whenever it was, not long after this movie came out or the short film came out, and he gave me this, uh, he gave me a copy of the the DVD, and it's really really good, and I had no idea that it, it's so weird seeing how it's connected. You, you'd probably recognize Ray McKinnon even if that name doesn't ring a bell for you. Uh, as a character actor, you've you you have probably seen him and stuff. he had a very long-running role on um, on Deadwood on HBO as the okay. uh, preacher who ends up getting like a brain tumor spoilers, oh. I guess for a you know ten year old show. <laughs> <laughs> but he's really good at it. And then we've got the town tow truck guy, Harry, played by a young actor named Robert England. We've already, yeah, it's already our second Robert England appearance. England had already appeared in Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive by this point. And he had also just made a made for TV movie called Mysterious Two, uh, although it actually would not air until 1982. It aired uh, on TV after the release of this movie, but it was filmed beforehand. And that film was written and directed by Gary Sherman, who had personally offered the dead and buried role to England. He, he wanted him for this. And I looked up Mysterious, too, because the, the name sounded really familiar to me. I was like, that sounds familiar. Have I seen that? And it turns out that I had heard it because I was recently watching a Heaven's Gate documentary on HBO. You know, the, the Heaven's Gate cult. Oh, yeah. Uh, Marshall Apple, uh, Applebaum. Yeah. And uh, the film is actually loosely based on the story of, or I said Applebaum, White, Herf White, and Bonnie Nettles. And the story... The the movie tells the story of two aliens who visit Earth to try to enlist converts to travel travel the universe with them. So basically, Gary Sherman took the idea that was behind this weird cult that this is again, this is two two and a half decades, two decades before their famous you know mass suicide. But they they were established for a long time and they were already fairly well known. And he took the story of what was like the conceit of their cult and built a narrative around it which is kind of wild and i kind of want to see it honestly i kind of want to see this movie (laughs) Uh, but yeah they talk about that in that hbo documentary about the cult so it's uh, it's pretty interesting
0: (laughs) this is still all before Freddie. we're gonna if we do a robert England series at some point we'll have like his a lot of his early career covered
2: yeah i mean we uh this is, this is not long before Freddy. This is, what, three years before the first Nightmare movie? Because um, was... the first Nightmare was 1984. So he's he's going to blow up pretty quickly, you know, not too long after this. But I, I don't know what other movies. I, I can't think of any others that he was in. Like, yeah, I was just actually literally, literally like
0: I had it pulled up here at IMDb. And I was like, nah, it's just like all TV shows pretty yeah. much. Mm-hmm you know besides like he's in a movie called galaxy of terror and then it's like straight up tv all the way through to freddy
2: yeah i think he did the v miniseries during that time maybe yeah he did yeah so, The actual filming of Dead and Buried was pretty uneventful, although there were some bumps along the way as ownership of the film changed hands. Gary alluded to that earlier, and we'll talk about that in, in detail here in a minute. But the film was, uh, it was filmed almost entirely on location in Mendocino, California, not actually filmed in the in the Northeast where it's set. I mean, they never really say where it's set, but it's pretty clear that this is supposed to be like new england yeah. there's that one guy the one the one character who has that really thick main accent i think he's the hotel owner the guy who owns oh, the yeah, hotel yeah, yeah. i love that guy he's a great <laughs> character this film's filled with great little side characters like that i think that that really it's really populated with some very memorable people even sometimes in very small sometimes you know very few scenes
0: yeah, the uh the Fred, uh, I think the guy's name is Freddie in the movie. I cannot for the life of me. Freddie is of... the, the photographer at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that guy, uh you know, Sherman talking about, you know, hindsight, like he would have hired they would have forked they he would have tried to pitch to fork over extra money for like a uh a big a bigger star for that, that role just because it would be a lot of fun almost getting the psycho treatment of having, you know, the guy at the beginning that he dies. Also, it would be a big deal when he's revealed again later.
2: Yeah, because, because that character is not, because the actor is not, like, immediately recognizable, it, if it wasn't for, like, the music in his reveal scene where you see him turn around, you know, to direct the people to the gas station... Uh, it's it's not it would not be super clear that that's the same guy because he just doesn't have a super recognizable face. Yeah, they if they'd got a slightly bigger star in that role, I think that would have been a little bit more effective. I I definitely agree with that. He's wearing a similar hat,
0: I guess that helps, right? Um, the interesting stuff there is, uh, I mean, it's worth mentioning. A lot of the people that were hired on this uh, film were sherman's regulars like he had he had people that he that he liked working with uh obviously steven poster is the cinematographer on this one and he had worked with sherman back in those industrial commercials and all that crap that uh we talked about earlier and he brought him on but they had a real idea to like flush this the way this movie looks and like it's supposed to always look cold and even though that it's you know in california and obviously on a beach but it's supposed it's supposed to kind of seem you know like on the like a (laughs) northeastern beach you know sort of but uh the you know so so like that opening scene for instance they they filmed during the day and they couldn't you know that he he talks about the the day they went out and filmed that that they couldn't call a weather day because it was bright and sunny but it totally went against like the look that they were going for yeah. so they actually designed like a huge tarp that went over the whole area and like some silk and they used like certain ways the uh, poster did some things with lenses to like try to really give it this cold look uh you know there that it's not bright and sunny and mm. happy and uh i don't know they they flushed all the. it was interesting they they flushed out all the the reds in the movie like there was originally there was supposed to be no literally an idea sherman had was no reds at all except for lisa blount's blouse at the the beginning beginning. yeah and uh, that was it and uh so so that when there was blood it would be like really startling really stand out Yeah, yeah and uh but of course the studio transitions changed that as they added more gore into it but uh I don't know. They went so far as to like changing head uh taillights in cars to purple and yeah. that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't those, just me.
2: I saw those and was like, Whoa. yeah, it's one of those subtle things that you don't necessarily consciously know, but it does add to the overall mood look of the film. Cause the thing is when I, when I think about dead and buried, I think about it being like a very cold movie, very cool colors, yeah. uh, everything in blues and grays, you know? Yeah. Uh, very, yeah, sure. very, uh, I don't know, faded. You know, it, it, there's just something about it. And and the reason that they chose Mendocino was because it most closely resembled those new New England seaside towns, like Potter's Bluff, and Sherman and his crew specifically chose Mendocino. Mendocino is in in Northern California, and they chose it specifically because of how regularly the area was covered in fog. Uh, in fact, they they would base their shooting days around how foggy it was outside so there were times when if it was foggy enough they would do exterior shots if there wasn't enough fog they'd shoot some interior stuff so at a certain point though they ran out of indoor stuff to shoot uh which led to the the scene where gary was talking about where they had to they were forced to shoot outside on a sunny day because they couldn't that they're like we don't have anything else to shoot and we have to get this shot to stay on schedule yeah And one of the scenes that posed some challenges uh, is the haunted house scene in the middle of the movie. One of my favorite sequences in the movie uh, where the family's being like stalked by the the townsfolk. So So for this scene, the laws in Mendocino County wouldn't allow them to shoot at night because of child labor laws. And there's a kid in the entire scene. So to pull it off, they had to construct this huge tent that completely covered the house to make it appear to be nighttime outside. And it had to be big enough, not only to cover the house, but all the outside lighting and everything as well that we see through the windows. So as Sherman described it, the tent took up an entire like city block, basically. It's just like the biggest tent you've ever seen because wow. they had to do it. They had to make, they had to make it look like they were out. This wasn't shot on a set. You know, the the house they were shooting in was a house. So they had to actually cover it to make it seem nighttime. That scene was actually supposed to appear much later in the film but by the time post production rolled around, the production company who was calling the shots thought the film needed a scare scene earlier. And if you look closely, you can actually see the hitchhiker character among the townsfolk. And at this point in the movie, she hasn't appeared it's because of, because that, like Gary said earlier, the hitchhiker scene was supposed to be earlier. This was supposed to be later uh so she's actually you don't know to really look for until you've seen the movie a few times but yeah she's in there among the people who are stalking them when they burst into the house oh, what well,
0: drove sherman crazy. nuts because he, he was like of all the people that we could have cast for this role when they're going to screw around with the seeds it's lisa marie and she's got that cute little whoville nose so <laughs> she stands out like yeah. how how would you not notice her face but he says that you know now again hindsight he's like i guess nobody ever seems to know that except me so he's like i guess maybe they were right on that one uh the family by the way i mean that kid is in a later scene in the schoolroom, um which is supposed to have been also earlier on in the movie which was going to be the first uh conversation between the sheriff and his wife uh but again i don't think that one matters that much because i guess you could just assume that kid's a zombie kid or something
2: that was kind of my assumption was that he he got turned into one of them basically All right, so about those production company changes. Uh, when the film was first in development, it was being produced, and this shocked me, by Guinness, the beer company. Guinness. <laughs> it flew
0: by by too, right? <laughs>
2: Apparently, Guinness was wanting to get into film production, so they bought a studio, but their foray into film had not been going well and did not last very long. They, they'd had a couple of disasters and decided to pull out about halfway through pre-production on Dead and Buried. So then the production company that Guinness had hired to oversee the film ended up taking over the production uh, using funding from a different source. And they oversaw the rest of pre-production and pretty much the entirety of the shoot. And they were apparently pretty easy to work with by Sherman's account. They, these guys loved the movie. They loved his vision for it. They loved the tone. Uh, they just generally like were into what he was doing with it. Nice. But then the film got sold to a third company during post production. And I'm not sure why. I, I could not find out why the rights got sold, but it got sold to a third company during post production. And these guys, they didn't quite get what Sherman was trying to do here. They told him, if we wanted a horror film by Bergman, we'd have hired Bergman. Uh, I guess they saw it as being too artsy fartsy for their taste. Uh, so, but you know, they didn't hire Sherman in the first place. So, <laughs> they, oh, yeah. they didn't really have have anything to do with hiring a uh, uh the bergman
0: of horror they uh, i think sherman said it was just that that second company got bought out by yeah, a, a bigger studio or something and so it was just that i don't know the guinness thing was funny although it's not that was marketing back then because i think all around that same time there were people doing uh like guinness also did the book of world records it was like another way to get your name yeah. into something else like michelin had the uh restaurants up the coast of california like the restaurant guide and it was like a different way of marketing to like get yeah. you to yeah drive up and down the coast to like check out these other restaurants and somehow that would connect to their tires and uh you know it was a uh, i think it was michelin anyway yeah, yeah. michelin starred restaurants yeah 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 see i knew you <laughs> i'm not fancy like you uh the <laughs> uh, michelin starred restaurants are a very well-known thing but yeah well i sort of knew (laughs) (laughs) the uh but anyway so so i guess it makes sense maybe they were trying to like just throw themselves into the movie industry and also you know market that way as well they thought it'd be a good idea but the second group for them yeah the i don't know it just uh it started getting you know this is where the studio meddling thing starts coming into play and scenes get moved around gore gets increased like people think it needs to be something different than what the original dark comedy feel that Sherman might have thought it was gonna be, or yeah, that's, that's
2: it. Yeah, just, these guys just, they, they kind of had a very different idea of what the film should be. They they did want more gore, they wanted more titillation. They they demanded that Sherman shoot some additional scenes and restructure the film a bit, like like the the scene where we uh see the old drunk fisherman. Uh that scenes were like that were expanded to be more violent, like that scene. His gory death wasn't originally in Sherman's original version. He cut away when it was obvious that the man was about to be murdered, but they wanted to see the murder. So they had to go back and do reshoot. So that one wasn't shot like on location in Mendocino. They they filmed that like on a on a stage. And Sherman is not entirely happy with the resulting film. If you listen to his commentary, like he's not, this is not the movie he meant to make. Uh, the tone is very different from what he'd intended. Like you, you said, it's a, it was supposed to be a dark comedy. And there's not a lot of that there. Um, and not a lot of that is left intact, except for some of the performances, like specifically Jack Albertson, who are playing really like purposely broad. But other than that, there's not a lot of the comedy left
0: in the film. I'm interested how uh, the tone would have impacted things. I mean, because for me, I mean, for better or worse, I, I actually think the movie's pretty fantastic but uh yeah yeah i
2: do too but i, I and d- despite the fact that sherman it's not the movie he meant to make that he not exactly the movie he meant to make there's a lot of what he wanted that he intended that's still here
0: he's, but he's i'm very open.
2: curious about that but unfortunately we'll never know this isn't like they're going to be where something you know there's going to be a, a dvd or i mean a blu-ray down the line where it's the original sherman version of this movie because this production company when they bought this the, or when they had the movie recut and rearranged and reshot they then ordered that every other copy of the film be burned so there is no existing cut so sorry to everyone who was trying to get released the sherman cut trending on twitter uh,
0: but it is not going to happen because it does no longer exist yeah he had a director's cut that was going around they they screened it at a couple of places right They yeah uh, but uh yeah they they it was going to cost too much money for that to exist by the ter- time the third studio came in so yeah it was destroyed and that's yeah. sad but it's really sad Is really, <laughs> sad. This is really uh,
2: there have been other cases where we think that every you know every copy of the film has been destroyed and then they've been found in some warehouse out in you know utah somewhere or something so who knows it could happen but it's unlikely at this
0: point yeah the studio wanted to make more change i mean sherman would when you hear him talk about it now like he seems more at peace with it that it still ended up getting some recognition and it has like a cult following and that sort of thing that at least because it's not so much uh that everything got changed the tone is different than what he had intended it to be but yeah yeah, and and they added gore yeah they added more gore so it kind of ruined the red thing that we were talking about and uh he, he talks about the studio wanting to make more changes to that, like part of uh, Dobbs, you know, Albertson's stuff is all like he's playing it broad, like Justin said, just because it's he's definitely comedic or he's trying to have fun. And uh, he's playing that big band music. They wanted to get that out of there. They hated I love that. that. Yeah, and, I uh, it was great. It's a great character, like just quirk. But he said there, were, there was too much trouble. Like, they were just like, he said too many scenes and too many different ways it's included that they were just like, hey, fuck it, you know, basically. Uh, so you still get Dobbs carving faces up to big band classics. So yeah. just like just like Duke Ellington intended, it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, speaking of Duke Ellington, by the way, the score is beautiful. I love the music in this movie, and that's by a guy named Joe Renzetti. Uh, yeah, who did Chucky? I think right. Yeah, he play? did Chucky. He did yeah. a bunch of stuff. He's a longtime music industry person. He was best friends with Gary Sherman. Uh, Gary Sherman also did early work in, as a studio musician, and hmm. so he worked with Joe Renzetti and uh, got him in there. And Joe Renzetti got a uh, Oscar for the score, the score in uh, Buddy Holly, the Buddy Holly story. Oh, the Buddy Holly story. Nice. Yeah, and so uh, that was him and. He the said he would try Nick to Nolte, or he, I think that's right. Nick Nolte, yeah. His buddy uh, no, Holly, no. yes. Wait, Gary who Busey. Buddy Holly. I get Gary them Busey. mixed up. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to do. Everybody does that. <laughs> I get them mixed up.
2: Yeah, it's, it's Gary Busey, which who also won, I think, an Oscar for that.
0: Yeah. So uh anyway, that's how they met. But the, he he's, he said with the music, I guess it's kind of funny. He was just telling like a little side story that he would try to get him and Rizzetti were friends, and he would try to get him on stuff all the time. But like people would be like. Like on TV movies and stuff. And they'd be like, oh, We got somebody already. He's like, This guy's an Oscar winner and I can get him yeah. on this. And they're like, Yeah, but that, you know, after the Oscars, it doesn't matter anymore. Wow. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I guess even after these changes were made, the production company who distributed it didn't have a ton of faith in the movie because they did very little to promote it aside from commissioning a pretty kick ass one sheet. I love the poster to this movie, I think it's rad. There's no imagery from the movie on it, but it's just a really great poster. I think it is weird because it
0: it doesn't look like anything, like I mean, from I don't know, like it's it's a weird, a weird other than it's on a beach, I think, but other than that, yeah. I thought it was like the the, fucking Statue of Liberty or something. like (laughs) (laughs) like It's a cool poster, but yeah. Has nothing to do with the movie, hardly. But
2: (laughs) But anyway, they didn't really do a lot of promotion on it. I mean, they they had a trailer, they put it out and everything, but they didn't really push it hard. Uh, As a result, the film did very little business when it was released on May 29th, 1981. It only played in 83 theaters. Uh, for about a week per screen, and it made a measly $216,000 at the box office. It was pretty much ignored by critics and audiences alike, although it has gone on to have quite a cult following. I mean, we're still talking about it right now, you know. Yeah, uh, There's even a 40th anniversary 4K Blu-ray release coming out from Blue Underground later this year, which I'm going to have to double dip on that when I get it because it's got a lot of new new material on it. So not the not the Sherman cut, unfortunately, but a lot of new, uh, you know, interviews and things like that. New commentaries. So uh, I'm excited to check that out. We should have waited. Well, well. (laughs) but, you know, I'm guessing I'm guessing that not everyone in 2021 is a huge fan of this movie. Gary, I'm betting there are people who
0: watch it and aren't fans. I, I, I will say this. A lot of people sometimes I say somebody needs a nap but a lot of people apparently did get their nap because there's not a lot of reviews (laughs) like it's the least amount of reviews i've seen on sites or at least they're currently napping yeah they're still (laughs) currently napping (laughs) yeah but leave it to the internet no matter what you do no matter where you go the internet is always there and so people find a way to express to you that somebody needs a nap Uh, So the easiest ones to start with are like from Amazon because they're short and sweet to the point. Like this guy, 80s stud, who says he gives it one out of five stars. His title of his review is consider the one star, the biggest pile of crap you've ever seen. I guess I don't know what that means exactly. It's like a star shaped poop or something. (laughs) Anyway, It's a good Uh, trick. Yeah god Does that mean this you have is a star-shaped ter- butthole? Like like <laughs> the those so starfish? Like one of those, like like those play Play-Doh Like one of those Play-Doh molds? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just says, God, this is terrible. Don't waste your time. Uh That's the review? Yeah, that's the review. No, oh, This is from FPOTC, who just uh, titled is Don't Waste Your Money. And the review is, Not Scary! Yelling. Wow. Did Jason G here says... uh the intro was so god awful that I couldn't stand to force my ears to listen to the crap music anymore. My fault for picking this movie, but when I go into the horror genre to pick a flick to watch, I want action, suspense, madness, mayhem, not a five-minute piano walk on a beach. That's what he said. Wow. Brian says like. I really, really uh, like
1: really that opening.
0: So did I. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Brian says, trying to make up for poor writing. It's difficult to believe such accomplished veteran actors would waste their talent on this tripe. Uh, the title of his review is Typical Gore and TNA. I don't even remember boobs in this movie. Were there boobs in this movie? Yeah, Lisa yeah. shows
2: her boobs in the opening scene.
0: Oh, okay. All right. All right. But if you want the real reviews, you got to go over to IMDB for this. Uh, so I've got. There's one. some good
2: ones on Letterboxd, Gary. Here's one just to, to butt in on your segment here. Oh, go ahead. By a guy, named, a one star review from a guy named Silver.
0: I gotta start looking at Letterboxd more.
2: Says, I made a lot of poor choices in my life. Watching this movie was one of them.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. uh, but this is my favorite one, and this is the the last one on my list here. Uh, this is from Thomas196x200029. Um, <laughs>
1: It rolls right off the tongue but
0: <laughs> easy to remember username <laughs> uh, He his review is titled this is a disgusting film really started the 80s trend of disgusting violence masquerading as a horror film I was the target audience for this repellent piece of trash and I was disgusted then as now oh where do we start let's see the setup you can bring people back to life if They died a violent death. So that laughably weak premise is the excuse to butcher people in horrible ways because well, that's needed to bring them back to life, I guess. That might've worked if played over the top for black laughs a la reanimator or something, but no, it's played straight. There is a whole terrified family in a wagon that gets hunted down. One of the few scenes at least where the demise is off screen. However, just about everything else is on screen. There is actually a scene where a young girl walking along is beaten and killed by zombie townspeople who are all filming it and grinning with several cameras. Then there is a close-up of her face as the filmmakers lovingly and time-consumingly reveal in time-lapse photography her beaten face being carved down to a skull and rebuilt to look normal again. This done, of course, by a slumming Jack Albertson as the mortician behind it all. He likes to drive around in an ambulance slash hearse playing old Tommy Dorsey tunes. I guess that is supposed to be cute. In the end, of course, even the sheriff is undead and the doctor offers kindly to fix his rotting hands. Not clear why the sheriff is not out with the other townspeople killing children with glee and slicing their faces off, sticking needles in bird victims' eyes. But I really, really wonder what people see in a geek show like this to give it any kind of rating at all. It's not scary, the twists are laughable, and overall it's kind of sick. It's not even well enough done to see it on a dare or enjoy on a level you might watch a bad H.G. Lewis film. It's just god-awful trash made for people who get off on of this type of pointless gore and made by people slumming for a paycheck. I'm sad that mm. Albertson was even involved.
1: Wow. Uh- let me ask both of you guys how how much and how, with what frequency did you get off with 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 all this war? <laughs> I am curious as to the numbers. I mean,
2: the, I mean, how long's the movie?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not really the person. You
0: stop ask, keeping track am, after a while. <laughs> I am a chronic masturbator, clinically diagnosed. <laughs> so I don't, you know, <laughs> it's it's really not so much what's in front of me as just the desire to do it, you know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You mean that literally and metaphorically, right? Right. right. Okay.
0: (laughs) So I can
2: kind of understand with this movie not vibing with audiences in 1981 uh, because this was at the height of the slasher era, which is undoubtedly why the company that bought the rights to the film wanted more gore in it. Gore was what was selling in the early 1980s. You know, this is a year after Friday the 13th. Right. It is sort of astonishing, though, that despite all of the restructuring and tinkering with the film, the movie still works really, really well to me. I mean, I I, uh, and I kind of already Gary's kind of already tipped his hand at this one, uh, but I think this works incredibly well. Uh, I would, however, like to know Todd's take on this.
1: <laughs> I like I said, I really dug the opening. And, uh, I thought the music and, you know, the slow setup to, uh, the photo shoot that was happening on the beach. And then the random woman, I was kind of like, all right, this is kind of, you know, this slow burn type horror movie. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm in. And then, you know, as we've discussed, you know, between the, uh, the effects really, really solid cast. If I'm going thumbs up or thumbs down, I'm going thumbs up. This was actually, this was really good. I was, I was pleasant. I I had, this was not on my radar in any way other than doing it for the show.
2: Like you, and you were not familiar with the existence of this movie.
1: Correct. Yeah. I was not familiar with this one at all. Um, So I went into it clean, fresh, never, you know, never seen before. And I really enjoyed it at the end of it. Now, the thing that really got me in the end because uh, you know i'm on board with it i'm on board with it um i'm a big uh philip k dick fan and when we get the reveal because there's 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 two reveals in this in this movie and the first reveal is kind of like oh okay you know it's been a slow burn to that but then we get the second reveal and i don't think that we talked about that at all and it's that um you know spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it but i mean
2: uh, if you're listening to this yeah if you're listening to this
1: this, yeah yeah uh but the second reveal that sheriff that the sheriff is also dead and has been apparently for a while uh to me that was such a philip k dickian reveal and you know in looking back at the plot seeing the paranoia and uh, suspicion of everybody and you know what is happening here within this story there was a lot of uh, Philip K Dickian things happening there and then looking at all of the characters that are dead and how their clothes don't change and they're always just kind of there you know yeah they're in character the whole time and I was just like man this is this was, this had, this, this is an onion of a movie. Like it's got a bunch of layers and you beat an the ogre, ogre of, of a movie. movie. Yeah, exactly. It's an ogre of a movie for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, so, it, and so I really enjoyed it.
2: To me, that ending is less Philip K. Dick and more. That's Lovecraft. That's a Lovecraft ending. I, and it's yeah. also very much like an EC comics. ending I was going to go like, with,
0: yeah. Like tales from the dark side kind of thing, or, you know, uh creep show or,
2: Creepshow uh, tells from the crypt like that's
0: that's a tells from the
1: crypt ending. Right. I was like that was that is like Lovecraft meets Philip K Dick and that like he's a government official like trying to, you know, solve the mystery. I mean, you know, honestly, this whole thing, the whole movie feels like an EC comic to me. Yeah. Uh, it much.
2: really feels like it could be an episode of The Twilight Zone or an episode of Tales from the Crypt or a segment from Creepshow. Mm-hmm. Like it just there's something about the overall vibe of the story that that's just kind of what I get from it. Like, I could very much see an, uh, like, a shorter version of this being in Creep Show or Creep Show 2 or something, you know? Right. Uh, it just, it just has that, that feel to it, that, that shock ending that you expect from those, those old EC comics. And, I do think that this is incredibly well directed by Gary Sherman. I think Gary Sherman does really, really good work here. I think he leans into like, I think that he treats the material like art in a way that a lot of directors would not like he is, he does not ever feel like this, this material is like below him, you know, he's treating Mm -hmm. it like an important movie. And, you know, some of that is, like, for instance, the decision to take Red out of the movie. Not a lot of people who are making what is essentially a, a B movie. It's a movie about the undead. It's a horror movie. Uh, a low, a fairly low-budget horror movie. Not a lot of people are going to take the care to do something like that in it, you know, to, mm. to worry about the color scheme of the story. But he's right. really trying to do something special, which I think is why he's probably so annoyed with some of the changes that were made in it.
0: Yeah, he said, you know, like in his commentary towards the end, when they ask him when it's running the credits, you know, his final thoughts. His, he he said, it was first inclination inclination was to disown the movie and completely shut it down, but that he says stepping back, that maybe it ended up okay. That that he was, he's all right. he fought it for so long and uh he had his version but the third studio wouldn't flip the bill for it you know like we said it destroyed all the copies so he said he was he was getting worn out and then he had uh robert Ramy ramey it's r-e-h-m-e uh bob ramey is what he calls it he's a producer uh a, a executive producer on a shit ton of stuff Like came in and he said actually that's where they made their friendship and. Robert Raby said, you're just gonna have to trust the process on this one. Let's move on and let's try to make another movie. And so that's when he went on to make Buy Squad. By Squad. Yeah. Yeah. But uh he seemed he seemed at peace, you know, with the whole thing.
2: Well, I, I think that he has a really good eye for or a really good instinct for crafting sequences. In this. I mean, that, that opening scene, for instance, that Todd remarked on, like, that's incredibly well done. And it builds uh to a point where you're like, it goes on just long enough to where you're starting to feel, I don't know, comfortable with the scene, but also like you're going, is what's gonna happen? Like what 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 are, what, what are we building to? But you never think that it's gonna build to what it builds to, which is all these people just pop up out of nowhere and fucking murder a guy or they think they murder a guy, you know, and then the follow-up in the hospital with the, with the same character is even better. Like it's just really kind of intense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Probably my favorite sequence is that haunted house sequence, which Ah. kind of is a standalone little sequence in the middle of the movie, but it, it's really well done. It's very intense in a, in a way that the rest of the film is not the way that we see like the shadows, in the windows behind the family i I definitely wanted
0: to mention that yeah
2: yeah and he never really draws attention to it but they're there and it just makes it extra creepy like if, if he had drawn more attention to it to the shadows i don't think it would have been as effective but the way that he does it he's he's trusting the audience he's trusting the audience to to see what's going on and it's just really creepy it's really really creepy and, and yeah, the family's making dumb decisions. Like I think the guy, the, the wife tells the, the guy to go down in the basement, like, oh, maybe the people are in the basement. Maybe they do a <laughs> fuse and they're fixing it down there. Like that's really yeah. stupid. Yeah, <laughs> That's really stupid logic. But, you know, it's just one of those horror movie logic things you just kind of have to go with. But it builds a really great sequence. And here's another fun fact about that sequence. So we, we talked earlier about how they had to fill, they had to like, Cover the whole house with a giant tent. Well, they actually had to have fans in that tent as well. These big, loud fans. They I think it had to like blow out exhaust and things like that. And they were so loud that they couldn't record any dialogue. Which is why when you're watching the scene, it seems like the mouth movement and the dialogue's a little bit off. Is because they had to do it, go back and dub the whole sequence over like like if like you're watching an italian horror movie where they dub everything you know they had to dub everything over which in my opinion i mean it kind of adds a whole nother surreal like layer to the whole scene that just makes it seem weird like the whole movie's just got a weird off-putting vibe to it intentionally off-putting and weird
0: That was supposed to be the whole point. I mean, that's all that Sherman wanted out of the movie was it was the whole thing to make you uncomfortable, it to be weird. And he does. You're right. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know much about Gary Sherman, but just hearing him talk about it, I kind of like became enamored with the guy, like as far as like his mind, like he he seemed to, like you said, really care. And he seemed to treat it with seriousness, which you want from a horror director, you know, the, to, to try to make the best movie you can make it. So his, his whole thing with like studio meddling was just like all the stuff he had idea wise seemed to be screwed with, you know? And so it seemed like mm-hmm. he, he was just one of these guys, in the first instance of getting to make a decent budget movie and people are screwed with it. And it's not good experiences, by the way, he even tells the story, uh, either an interview or the commentary where, you know, the second studio brought in uh, a guy to oversee the production and the guy was an alcoholic. He said, like, the guy had like no sense of what was going on. So the the worst instance of it was, is that they depended on him to handle certain aspects of it. And he didn't handle those that almost caused like serious accidents on set. One example he gave was that, uh, you know, they had to close off a road. And the guy was supposed to have contacted the police department to close off a road. They were filming on an said It was kind of like a out of the way, like stretch of road. But like they're filming and all of a sudden this car comes barreling 60 miles per hour around the curb, like Jesus. at the crew. And they all have to like dive out of the way because <laughs> it turns out this guy was drunk when they were talking about it and didn't ever call the police and, wow. you know, close the road. They thought it was like a closed off road. <laughs> and Jeez. That's crazy. That's, yeah, and uh, so he was just like frustrated, like yeah, generally. I mean, that's a frustrating experience. <laughs> well, another one
2: of my favorite sequences in it is the whole found footage sequence towards the end of the movie,
1: mm, uh, the black yeah. and white.
2: Uh, and, and Sherman, I think he said it was shot on sixteen millimeter black and white, but that whole thing is very, very creepy. They're like handheld like weird angles like it's very creepy and it kind of has a visual style that you would see in a lot of like horror films from the 90s and 2000s like early mm-hmm. 2000s like it had, like i i thought of like the um some of the 16 millimeter footage from the house on haunted hill remake you know had that kind of same similar vibe to it and it's just it's a really great sequence i remember watching it this time and just being kind of fascinated by that like this is pretty early on in the found footage genre even though this is not a found footage movie like that's still very much a found footage scene and not only that but it it leads to one of the big reveals in the movie which is that the wife is you know that she's in not only in on it but she murdered a guy then oh another twist on top of a twist that guy is you yep (laughs) it's really
0: good it's really excellent that's the sad part of it is because i mean to hear sherman talk about it he's really proud of these moments and like yeah you know they're even getting away with it appearing more violent during those scenes because they're like black and white and so you get away with a little bit more of the gore type stuff but it's not as like overpowering just like gore for the sake of gore and it's just like kind of off-putting the whole thing gets uh, off-putting and then yeah he he talks about that scene just like the you know oh hey this woman just stabbed a person uh, mid-coitus and (laughs) i don't know why I used that anyway i'm just really happy with myself for saying midcoitus. you just like to say you just i'm happy you got to say midcoitus. <laughs> <I am. laughs> just anyway so they're in the middle of making love she stabs this guy and uh and he's like and then you're surprised because it's her it's the wife and you're like ah oh, fuck but you're not even thinking about who who did she stab
2: yeah <laughs> and, uh, you're like she's cheating on her husband she's murdering a guy and then they reveal that the guy is the hero of the movie and yeah then we've got you know
0: because and this and, whole and, thing know, by the way is i think i said this earlier but it's it's that it's Dobbs' puppet show it's yeah. like he's already kind of controlling all of this like he controls everything here which is more the reason why he was frustrated with like say the doctor scene because he's like there or you know, even just in certain parts, he was like, the messing up of it is, is that like you start lying to the audience and he's like, I'm not trying to lie to the audience. I'm trying to make it fun for the audience. And it's like a mystery you could figure out. But when you start just like, now you're also lying to the audience, you're like trying to make it, he's puppeteering you, but it's no, you're supposed to be enjoying the movie. Like he's puppeteering the sheriff and this town and you know, like that whole thing.
2: Yeah. And not everything in the movie really makes logical sense uh, like the whole plan. Like what is, what is Dobbs doing? Like, why is he doing this? Never. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense. It does. It's never explained. Uh, He simply says like, I'll take my secret to the grave. And and that's like, (laughs) that's enough. That's enough of an explanation to me. Like he, he's got his reasons. Is it voodoo? Is it witchcraft? We don't really know. There are hints here and there, but they never explain exactly what's going on. Or like the fact that like, in that last scene there are just projectors set up all over Dobbs's uh, uh, just, office yeah. or whatever beams of light I, yeah yeah why why are the why would those be there it doesn't matter because you know what it makes it for a pretty fun looking scene oh yeah <laughs> if you start thinking about the logic of it maybe the whole time he set him up just so that he could he's like one day i'm gonna have to do my big villain monologue and this is gonna look really cool
0: <laughs> when i do it i i think sherman even straight up says like he and uh and the cinematographer like they were uh steven poster were talking about that it was just like i just want beams of light pointing everywhere
1: yeah and just
0: like it'll look cool <laughs> it, it looks it, cool it, yeah exactly right. it looks dope
1: it, it, yeah. it's pretty awesome <laughs> But so yeah. we
2: haven't done this on the last few episodes uh, because I I don't know I I, I want to do this only when it feels like we've got some really good options and and I, but uh, I would like to discuss movies for further viewing on this one because I think there could be some really fun ones and it's funny. Uh, I know Gary, one of the movies that I had for my further viewing on this, I know Gary watched this week and I wonder if it's for the same reason because it feels very similar and that's John Carpenter's The Fog. I think John Carpenter's The Fog would make a really good double feature with this movie.
0: You know, it does, but that's not why I watched it. I just really? watched it because you I just like John Carpenter it? and I just watched The Fog <laughs> again. Jennifer was like, I haven't seen The Fog in forever. I'd like to watch it. I was like, sold. Yeah, so. they just
2: feel like they feel like two sides of the same coin. You know, you've got this this small town now in the fog. Obviously, the the dead are not members of the town; they're pirates or whatever. But it's I don't know. It's got a very similar feel to it. A lot of fog in both. Yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, it's true. That that would be my further viewing. Other than
0: raw meat, I think you know if you want to watch another Gary Sherman movie, that's a fun one to watch. I mean, I suppose like it gives away the uh, spoiler, but I mean, I, you know, Stuart Gordon's reanimator, I mean, feels like a pretty yeah. similar concept. And I'll only just say that just cause you reminded me of it when you're like, I don't know why Dobbs did this. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe he's Herbert West and he's just yeah, like, he's just cause I can't. Like, yeah. I just have to just see. is a mad scientist.
1: Yeah. A mad scientist. Uh, I would go ahead and, uh, I'm sticking with my, uh, Philip K Dick stuff. And I would say probably, total recall or maybe scanners i think that would yeah. be a, i think that would be a fun double feature how so uh just the paranoia and you know what involvement it does the hero unknowingly play in okay. in the whole plot
2: yeah okay okay i get that now as we've explained uh dan o'bannon seems to have had very little to do with dead and buried i know we're doing a dan o'bannon series uh, but he didn't seem to have a whole lot to do in crafting this movie other than some contributions here and there. I know that like Jack Albertson, the first scene we see him in uh, where the sheriff comes in to see him in the morgue, mm-hmm. Ron Shuset says that that's all like Dan O'Bannon's dialogue in that scene. The Jack Chuck Albertson's dialogue was all rewritten by Dan O'Bannon there, but it's kind of unclear on just how much of this, it seems to be very little is actually O'Bannon's other than, you know, the ideas were not his in this case. He just he just cleaned things up a little bit. But that kind of seems to be the thing with Dan O'Bannon a lot. You know, he has this, he, ha- he has his hands in a lot of projects, but is never really the auteur, the author of the final product. Uh, you could say that he co-authored, you know, Dark Star with John Carpenter. You can even say the same about, about Alien because he undoubtedly helped to bring that film to the screen. Uh, and next week, we're we're, we're going to kind of continue this trend with a movie that O'Bannon was marginally involved with. But again, you know, he was marginally involved with Star Wars. But hell, Star Wars is like the biggest movie of all time. So it's kind of cool that like one guy is doing all these different things. And next week, to my knowledge, the movie we're talking about, O'Bannon was not involved in the production of it all but it's an anthology film that features two segments that were written by Dan O'Bannon next week. We're actually discussing the first animated movie where we've ever talked about on this series uh, here on cinema shock. And we're going to discuss 1981's heavy metal.
0: Nice. Have you guys seen it?
1: It's been years. I was going to say, I'm really looking forward to it Not since I was like
0: a teenager. I don't think. Cool.
2: (laughs) Well, it should be pretty easy to find. If you guys want to find out where to stream it, we'll have links up on cinemashock.net.
0: You can I was masturbating
2: find... to it, and I can't remember if it was because of the movie or... <laughs> probably probably the... Or just because you were like 14 and that's all you ever did. Yeah, I just
0: masturbated a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll find uh, you can out. You also
2: head to cinemashock.net to find links to all of our past episodes and where you can subscribe and all that. Rate, review us on all those things you guys got anything else friends where can you be found on the internet
1: i can be found at mr todd a davis on all the socials and if you like star trek i have a podcast called the computer resume podcast and it is on apple and spotify and amazon and uh, we're working our way through the entire star trek franchise in chronological order both gary and justin have been on multiple times and probably will again in the future Uh, but we're having a lot of fun with that series right now
0: i am at this is gary horde and i also have a a wrestling show too called uh this is pro wrestling it's like pulling teeth to get gary to promote his other show on here for some i'm not sure whatever the crossover is but yeah if you like (laughs) wrestling i have a show called this is pro wrestling it's at tipw show on all the social medias you can check that out
2: And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also find the show at Cinema underscore Shock. Twitter and Instagram. You can also like us on Facebook and all that stuff. Until next week, may the wigs of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. Oh, we didn't get like a variant of it this time.
1: No, I tried to to think of one and it's just like, you know what? I'm just going to make it as happy as possible.